Good morning and happy new year. So, uh, so scattered, but I won't make you move, don't worry. I know that's like the most annoying thing that pastors do. It's kind of cold in here too, huh? It's too chilly. Um, no? <laughs> well, uh, it's good to be here. Um, and I'm glad that y'all are here. Uh, if you, uh, like, um, like Naomi said in the beginning of the service, if you were traveling, I hope you had a really awesome time with friends and family, being home for the holidays. But it's now 2016, which is exciting, um, uh, in our first Sunday. So um, this, uh, usually for the New Year's time, or for the first Sunday of the New Year, uh, the pastoral staff, we, at least in the past number of years, we haven't had spe- like the beginning or kickoff of a particular series. It's just kind of open as like a New Year's theme. Uh, so the same will be for today. And then uh, uh, in January and February, we'll have some pretty exciting series. In February, you'll see dating, sex, and relationships, which is usually when people start coming to church more often. Um, But today will just be a New Year's-related sermon, uh, sermon, just one. Um, But let me pray for us really quickly, and then uh, we can jump in. I'm going to pray for us, and also just uh, read a a short prayer as well. God, we want to first just pause to say thank you for um, everything that we have is given from you and not even guaranteed. We come to church every Sunday, and uh, for those of us who are part of this family or even official members, uh, we just expect it to be here, and we know that even Cornerstone is a gift, that we have this space to come to this building, and that we have each other. Uh, We thank you that we have our jobs, our education, our family, friends, that we were even able to have vacation this past couple weeks, and uh, to even have time off from work, and to be able to afford that. We thank you for any food or or drinks or coffee even that we had this morning, because we know that Uh, Not everybody has that kind of privilege and access. Uh, So we deeply thank you, Lord. Of course, there are a number of more things we can thank you for, but we just want to pause to uh, be grateful before you as we just participate in this service. And so we thank you for this time where we can hear your word. um, And uh, we just pray that you would uh, really just feed our souls through it. So God, we thank you for your holy scriptures, their precepts, promises, directions, light. In them, may we learn more of Christ, being able to retain his truth and have grace to follow it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, a couple years ago in 2014, there was a book published called The Book of Odds. Um, it's not a very serious book, but it's, it's real numbers, so real odds, real statistics for everyday life kind of things. And actually, I was pretty surprised at how thick it was, but just things like Odds of getting struck by lightning, odds of winning the lottery, odds of, uh, I don't know, like, uh, catching your train exactly when it was, like, all these, like, random everyday things. And one of the, they had this section that had to do with New Year's resolutions. So uh, I guess these numbers are, I guess 2014 is recent enough, but a little bit outdated. Uh, For 2014, these were the 10 top New, or that says 2015 up there, but that's one year too late. Um, Top 10 New Year's resolutions that were made by Americans. So this isn't an international thing, but just here in the States. So number one, no surprise, lose weight. Two, be more organized. Spend less and save more money. Enjoy life to the fullest. Stay fit and healthy. Number six was learn something new. Seven, quit smoking. Help others fulfill their dreams. Nine, fall in love. And ten, most popular New Year's resolution of 2014 was spend more time with family. Now, the book also said that one in every 2.2 Americans made a New Year's resolution. So, I don't know, that's like 150 million-something people made a New Year's resolution. 
And so I want you to think in your head what percent you think kept it. So just take a second. What percent of Americans, the 100 million plus, kept their New Year's resolution? And share that with your neighbor, your guests. What percent? All right, so let's bring it back in. The percent according to, so I guess this study of the book, in the Book of Odds was done by the University of Scranton, and they said that the percentage was eight. Eight percent of Americans kept their New Year's resolution, just eight percent. So why do you think that is, right? Because so if eight percent kept it, that means 92 percent didn't. 92 percent of Americans who make a New Year's resolution every year fail, and why do you think that is? Pretty, pretty bad number, 92, right? So I looked into this further, and there were all these blogs about the, first of all, they call themselves experts. Like, how are you an expert on New Year's resolutions, first of all? But according to the experts, uh, they said that the number one mistake of New Year's resolutions is that you make them too uh, unrealistic and unquantifiable. So, so if we were to use this as an example, they would say the reason why 92% of Americans fail is because, number one, lose weight. Instead of lose weight, you should have put, I want to lose 15 pounds and keep it off. So this is so, it's not specific, so that's the issue. Um, Stay fit and healthy, like what does that really mean? How do you measure fitness? Enjoy life to the fullest means absolutely nothing. So at the end of the year, how will you have said, oh, I I enjoyed life to the full? Like, how do you say, how do you quantify that? help people fulfill their dreams, fall in love. Fall in love, maybe you should say, like, go on at least four blind dates to see if I meet somebody, or put myself out there, or join a social club that I might meet somebody. Spend time with family. Maybe it's, if you, let's say you're from California, it's uh, every vacation, no matter how expensive the plane ticket is, I'm going to go home. Like, that's a better New Year's resolution than just spend more time, which doesn't really mean anything in the end. So that's what the professionals say, or the experts on New Year's resolutions. But I'm not convinced that that's the reason why 92% of people fail. And the reason why I think that is because I've seen people do a lot harder things and a lot more like unspecific and unquantifiable things. Even with quit smoking, I've had friends who've just done it cold turkey and just stopped. They didn't have to say, oh, I'm going to do three and then down to two and down to one per day. Here are some examples that I, I thought of so many of things that people do that are different based upon what is on the other side. It's because in my argument is that it's not that you, your, your New Year's resolution is too ambiguous, but it's that the goal isn't as alluring and as a treasure and as important to you as you think it is. So when people say they want to lose weight, I think they fail not because they didn't say 10 pounds. I think they fail because they don't really want to lose weight that badly. So here are my examples. How many of you have either ever been on the receiving or the sending end of a text or a phone call or email? Hey, you want to hang out tonight? And then the person responds or you respond, oh, you live too far. I'm going to stay in. And then you guys don't hang out because of distance or, oh, parking is inconvenient. How many of you, yourselves or your friends, you know will drive like 45 minutes in traffic, pick up food and something if there's a boy or a girl on the other side, Right? Like, you know that that happens. In college, I had friends who flew to go hang out with a person that they were interested in. In 2012, I lived in Burlington, which is 
about 30 minutes outside the city. It's one of the suburbs. And I felt this pain of Cornerstone, right? Because I would text people, be like, hey, you want to hang out with me? And they're like, dude, you live in Burlington. It's so far. But then I hear that once somebody brings up Chick-fil-A, all of Cornerstone is in Burlington. So nobody wants to hang out with me, but if it has to do with the sandwich with Polynesian sauce, then everybody's showing up apparently. What about retreats, right? Twice a year, this time actually three times, uh, we make announcements. Media or Pastor Hojin will come up for presiding and be like, oh, registration is live, and this year it's $110. And everybody instantly is like, oh, $110? It's too expensive. Like, I don't know if I'm going to go. Like, the money, is there financial aid? And then Kobe's come out, and they're like $200. It's like, oh, I got a deal. And everybody's wearing $200 sneakers. J. Crew has a sale, and everybody's dishing out their money with no problem. But if retreat is what you're getting out of your $110, it's like, ugh, I don't really know if I want to go. Think about waiting in line. Some of you have waited in line for Black Friday for hours in the freezing cold because you know you're going to get a TV for like $300 off or waited for the new iPhone or you're at a concert and it's general admission. So the earlier you go, the closer you get to stand next to your, like, I don't know, Justin Bieber or your pop star that you love. On the flip side, have you ever been in line on a Sunday afternoon at Costco and seen how angry people are? I want to compare the facial expressions of someone at Costco, like the grimace, with somebody freezing in line for an iPhone. They're like, like all happy and they're dying. It's much more comfortable at Costco, but for some reason, whatever is waiting on the other line makes it worth it to you. Last one, I'll stop here. I think about marathon runners in Boston, right? The winter is the peak season where you really need to start getting in shape and where you really need to start increasing your volume of your miles. It's freezing cold, and yet we look outside and there's people bundled up, and if there's a snowstorm, it doesn't matter. They're running. They put themselves through suffering, and I don't know why you would want to do that to yourself, but it's because on the other side, when Marathon Monday comes around, I'm going to cross the finish line, and running in the winter and freezing and getting frostbitten is all worth it to me. I think that our goals and whether we keep it really isn't about how specific we are or how well we do them. But to me, I've seen people, and you've even done things, I've done things that are above and beyond expectation because we want the thing so badly. Or we fail because we don't really want it that much, as much as we think we do. In today's passage that we're going to read that's really short, the Apostle Paul talks about how much he puts himself through for the eternal prize of knowledge, of relationship, of God, and then furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. He talks about it in the whole chapter. We're just going to read a few verses. But he uses the example of athletics and how he disciplines his body and himself for this cause because of how badly he wants the eternal prize of being with Jesus. And that's the way that I want to kick off this year. So we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 9, starting from verse 24. Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So these few verses, which we'll pick apart, uh, come at the end, end of chapter 9. So chapter 10 begins right after that last line that I just read. Um, before we go into picking apart what we just read, I want to give a little bit of context of what's going on in the chapter. So chapter 9 is pretty, I'm not, you know, I'm not a scholar, but it seems as though Paul is just really venting. Because he starts talking about how he's willing to do anything, give up anything, go to any length for the gospel to be further, for him to be able to preach it. So just in like a snippet of chapter 9, this is the kind of stuff that he says. In verse 12, we endure anything. I'm going to endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Verse 15, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So all of chapter 9 is him just, just laying it all out there. I'm a free person. I can do what I want. I have freedom in Christ and what in his grace over me. But even with that being the case, I will go to any lengths. I will do anything, give up anything, subject myself to anything in order for the gospel to be further. So he's really transparent about that. And at the, after all of this kind of just like letting it all out there, we get to our passage that we just read. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. So here's the key sentence, the key word of, of what he's saying is his life, what he's saying is his ministry, uh, what he's talk, why he's bringing up all the sacrifices that he made, and also what he's telling the Corinthian church and what we should learn from as well. Run in such a way to get the prize. I know, and you know, that we all have the capacity to be romantic in such a way to get the girl or the boy, to wake up as early to get the discount, to save money in such a way to do more shopping, to go to the gym, to work out in such a way to get to the desired weight and body figure, to run outside in such a way to cross the finish line on Boylston. But do we see and understand and even relate to the Apostle Paul in the most important thing that we are called to in our lives, to run in such a way to get the eternal prize? What is most important to us? And where is most of our energy and our efforts going to? So he continues, and he uses an illustration of athletics. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. So again, the passage and the point is run in such a way to get the prize. And then he uses these following verses. He uses this illustration of athletics to flesh that out. Now, you know how, like, male pastors always use Michael Jordan illustrations and always like, oh, you know when you play pickup basketball and this happens and all the women are like, this is a stupid illustration? So Paul's not just being a bro here. He's actually, like, using an illustration that relates to everybody in Corinth very well. So you'll notice, right, in verse 25, everyone who competes in the games, like, what is he talking about? Like, what games? Taboo? Like, you know, like, he... He's not specific, and the reason, so the reason why he does that is like if I were to ask you, so using the marathon again, if in Boston we were downtown at Copley or something, I'd say, hey, are you training for the, for the marathon? I wouldn't need to specify what marathon I'm talking about, right? I'm not implying, oh, are you going to fly to Chicago? And, and No, it's just a default that 
the Boston Marathon. On Marathon Monday is what I'm talking about. So Corinth was just a few miles outside of what were called the Isthmia Games, which were just a few miles away. And because Corinth was a major city, the city officials of Corinth were the ones that hosted the games and had them every year. So this was like a huge celebration. Like Marathon Monday is a big deal in Boston, right? Like work is, we're all off, it's on vacation, and the whole city like shuts down and everyone's celebrating. Pretty similar with the Isthmia Games for Corinth. But the thing is, it was very, very serious to enter. It wasn't just like, I can just sign up for, or pay a fee, or like signing up for a local 5K, or playing a local sport, or joining a league. Athletes who wanted to compete in the Isthmia Games, firstly, they had to commit to a minimum, which was usually much more of 10 months of everyday training rigorously. Secondly, which is definitely something we don't do when we run the marathon or have some fitness goal, is they had to swear by Zeus that they would commit this. So two requirements. It wasn't in order to get your bib. One, that you had to swear to Zeus, or you know, he's going to strike you down with lightning, that you were going to train and make this your number one priority. And two, you had to show that to Zeus and to whoever else that by doing every single day for a minimum of 10 months. So it wasn't just a hobby. It was a way of life. Now Paul, he compares this prize and this effort and this energy and this 10-month commitment and this oath to the gods with the Christian prize. He says they, don't, they do it to get a crown that will last that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Some of you, in your translations of your Bible, instead of crown, it will say wreath, because literally it was a wreath. Like, imagine, like, a Halloween costume when someone's dressed as, like, Caesar. You know how they have the, like, leaves that go around their heads? Or, like, the little Caesars guy, the pizza pizza guy, he has, like, the the leaves around his head? Like, that's what he's talking about, because that was the crown that was donned on the victor of the Isthmia Games. So I found a photo that's in in a museum and this is, uh, the, this word right here is ismia uh, in Greek. And their crown is made out of pine. So, you know, that one looks a little bit more like the one that, like, culturally in the cartoons we're used to. But in the ismia games, they had pine wreaths that were the crown that were placed on the head of whoever won the particular games that uh, they were competing in. So I want you to imagine that you swear by Zeus and you join the however many meter race You train for 10 months, and you win. So there's a celebration, confetti is everywhere, they're playing music, little doves come and place the crown on your head, and you're all happy, and all your hard work paid off. And you go home, and you take off your wreath crown, and you place it on your mantle or your trophy rack or whatever, and you're so proud of yourself because all of that hard energy paid off. A few weeks later, you notice that the pine starts to get a little bit more brittle, So you don't wear it around anymore. You don't want to touch it lest all the pine leaves start to fall off. A few weeks later, the green starts turning into like kind of like a puke green and then a tan and then a dark brown. And then months later on your trophy rack, you have something that's literally rotting. So mold is growing there. And now it's just attracting bugs. So 
I want you to think about how culturally important it was for somebody to get this placed on their heads and to be cheered after they swore to the gods that this is going to be their number one priority and after all this time and energy and commitment was placed into it. And Paul, he uses this illustration because he knows what these people care about and he says that it's not eternal because it literally rots. They see it. It falls apart. Like imagine your Christmas tree and it turns brown and all the pine just starts falling to the ground. You have to vacuum it all the time. The, the thing that you've dedicated your entire life to is rotting in front of your eyes. And so Paul uses a literal illustration to say, you're running for something that is perishable, but I run for something that is eternal. So the number one point, again, is run in such a way to get the prize, but the right prize, not the wrong one. I know that none of us swore by Zeus and we're not like running for 10 months or like box training or boxing or training or anything, but we have our own versions, don't we? We swear by Zeus to work the hardest so as to get into the best programs. Usually that's swearing by Zeus and committing 10 months to get into the best programs, not to make little money, but usually to make the most money. We have our own commitments to, please our, to, to run in such a way to please our parents the most that we can, to lose the most weight, to look the best, to have the best love life, to have the most security, to get the most recognition. We swear by Zeus to work hard to be the most liked or to avoid the most conflict or to have the most friends. We have all these crown wreaths that are pine, that yeah, they're withering away. If, if your wreath is literally your physical body, all of you guys, at least in here, who've played pickup basketball at Fit Rec, know that you feel a lot more sore today than you did when you were in college. Your body is withering away too. It's not eternal. It will break down, it will be brittle, it will turn brown, and then it will die and it will be vacuumed up. So will your job, so will your bank accounts, so will your clothes and ho- your car. Your car will do that in 10 years, even if you buy a Mercedes. Run in such a way so as to get the eternal prize. So we end this passage in verse 27. Paul says, No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I will myself not be disqualified for the prize. So Paul, he talks about how he disciplines himself in order that he would live a life that is honoring to the call that God has given him so that he will be getting that eternal prize that he's aiming for. He doesn't allow his body to enslave him. He makes his body his slave because he understands how important it is and how badly he wants to treasure at the other end of the side. Run and discipline yourselves in such a way to get the eternal prize. I shared this story with the college students at the retreat and um, wanted to share this with you as well. Um, last, or no, not last summer, two summers ago, I went home to visit my parents and uh, they live about 45 minutes north of the city. And so, you know, it's a suburbs, there's a yard and, and space. And, um, and I came home to the most shocking thing ever. I came home to, to seeing my dad using money on something that wasn't absolutely necessary. So my dad is a very, I don't know, I guess you could say that's typical, right? 
We never went on vacation. He never bought new clothes. If we bought him socks, I'm not making this up to be funny in a sermon. If we bought him socks for his birthday, he would return it and say, what do I need socks for when he has all these holes all in his socks? Like, he was that type. This is a little bit embarrassing. He used to reuse floss because it was a waste to throw away floss after one use. We would cut napkins in half. I still do that because of my dad. I cut napkins in half, and I use half of them. So he's that type of person. We never, yeah, always reused old things. He fixed his own car, never went to a mechanic because why would you do something, why would you pay somebody to do somebody you could do? And I came home, and he had paid for landscaping, which was, to me, the most amazing thing. So our, our lawn looked like this. To you guys, you're probably like, well, that's normal. Everyone's lawn. Like, no, no, no. Our lawn, imagine this was all brown, and mushrooms were all over the place, and moss. So I'm not kidding. As a kid, I used to play this game by myself where I would kick the mushroom, and I would win if I didn't break the stem, but it got uprooted. Like, we had mushrooms all over the place. So I'd be like, precision, and then if it, the whole thing came out, I was like, oh, yeah. And I would go around and try to kick all the mushrooms up. Because why would you, like in my dad's head, why would you waste m- water? That's what clouds and rain are for. Why would you buy fertilizer? That's just, it's just outside. You go into the woods and rake in the woods? Like, no, you just let it stay there. It's nature. And I came home to this. So I was absolutely shocked. There were no mushrooms for me to kick or any moss. It was beautiful grass. So his life changed too. So he's, I don't know how much it cost, but however many hundreds of dollars or whatever he used to, to, to have the guys come and fertilize and everything, his life started to change too. So I don't know, if, I mean, how many people grew up in the suburbs or in urban environments, but mowing the lawn is not just supposed to be, like technically by the book, not just supposed to be, oh, when it looks ugly. You're supposed, based upon like the type of grass, you're supposed to cut it at a particular inch length because when you do, it gets most healthy, and it self-fertilizes. And so my dad found out what that was to the book with our grass, and so he cut the grass when it looked short, because that was the proper thing to do. He bought one of those, like, you know, like, gardening hats that, like, protected you from the sun and gloves, and those, like, spray weed killers. It's like the white jug where you pump it, and then you go around spraying. Like, my dad was doing this in our lawn. Craziest thing that I— this, to me, was shocking. He bought garden shears, and he was on his hands and knees— snipping the edges with scissors. He didn't get one of those, like, you know, guys. It was just scissors. And the grass was amazing. It was, like, beautiful. He put in all this effort, and he was fertilizing and, like, pulling up weeds. A few months later, I only visited home maybe, like, I don't know, every, like, two, three months. A few months later, this is what the lawn looked like. These are real pictures. This is my, well, they don't live there anymore. This is, this is the lawn. Just a few months later, this is what happened. So I asked him, I was like, what the heck happened to the lawn? Like, you spent all this money. I couldn't believe you spent the money. And now it looks like crap. Like, now, like, people just walk over it. And, like, mushrooms going to come back and everything. And he was like, oh, like, he kind of just shrugged his shoulders. Like, oh, it wasn't worth it. Basically, the constant mowing, the cutting with the scissors, the spraying weed killer, pulling them up, throwing them in the trash, like, it wasn't worth the prize of having a nice lawn and having, 
having people respect you. Oh, one thing that I should have taken a picture of, he even bought the, the lawn stone, you know, like the Cupid who spits the water out. You know, like, we had those on our lawn. I was like, this is so embarrassing. He went all out, and they were gone, and it was just rotting grass. You could just walk all over it. It didn't matter. Because he didn't water it. He didn't take care of it, and so it rotted. I know that a lot of us make commitments because we want to grow. We want, we want to be a godly man or woman. We want this year to be changed in X way and Y way. And the new year comes around and we have all this expectation and this energy and this anticipation. Oh, I'm going to accomplish these goals and these goals. And then, I don't know, April or whenever comes around, it's like, when I think about this year, my time, like, I never feel close to God. He, he doesn't answer my prayers. Like, I feel so distant. Like, work is difficult. I feel like I'm dragging my feet. Maybe I just need to get a new job. And, and, and this, like, this, I feel like we have this typical, like, gloom of the difficulty of life and why doesn't my spirituality feel like I'm growing? Why am I not maturing? I feel like I'm in a rut. And to me, whenever I hear that, I think first immediately, do you water the grass? To me, it's like if my dad were to say, wait, what the heck happened? Why did, why did the grass all die? It's because you didn't water it. It's because you didn't put fertilizer in the dead patches. It's because you didn't mow it the number of times based upon the self-fertilization rates. You sat back and you watched it die. That's why it's brown. And I wonder if that's the same thing for us. If, if, if so often the New Year's resolutions and the spiritual commitments that we make just on the other side, like, oh, is it worth waking up earlier to do my QT before the train? No, I'd rather sleep. And then we're wondering, God is so far away from me. I don't think God went anywhere. I think it's you just stopped watering the grass. So like the Apostle Paul, our call is to discipline our bodies, not just for the sake of discipline and not for the sake of having something that is transient and perishable and not worth it, but something, a prize that is eternal, a joy that is beyond what we even realized we were working for. So what is our commitment going to be this new year? What are we going to set our hearts on? What is your lawn care, if you will, going to be in 2016? How can we heed the word of Apostle Paul to, to discipline our bodies like an athlete committed to games that he so desperately wants to win? And to, but this for us, for the church, to have our eyes set on a prize that's eternal, not a crown made out of pine leaves that will die. In application, I want to encourage us to, if you're making like the normal cultural New Year's resolutions, to please do that. Like, even if you fail in week two, I always think, at least you made it and tried. Like, I think that's a positive. And you did it for two weeks. You didn't eat fast food for two weeks. To me, that's a celebration. That's worth it. But, but before that, that not as a priority, can we as the church make our priority, our number one resolution, if you will, be spiritual disciplines? I know we say it all the time, and I know you've heard it before, and we're probably going to hear it a million more times on Sundays or in a small group. But the reason why I want this sermon and th- from Paul's uh, passage and his letter to the Corinthians and our application for today 
to be spiritual disciplines is because nothing will change and benefit your spiritual life like spiritual disciplines. Retreat attendance, small group attendance, service, uh, giving a lot of money, none of that, none of that, conferences, those will all be good for you. It's the fertilizer that helps. But none of that will be like the water for your soul as spiritual disciplines will. It's the most beneficial thing for us. So examples, you know, fasting, prayer, scripture reading, Sabbath and solitude, whatever your spiritual discipline needs to be, like Google it, there's a, there's a bunch. Whatever your spiritual discipline needs to be, just find one this year and try your best to commit to it. And when you stop and when you fail, that's fine. Just do it again. I know we've heard all the tips like get a devotional book or follow the Bible reading app or, um, you know, do it with an accountability partner. Yesterday, uh, I had old a friend that I only see once a year, like one of my best friends visit, and, and he's committing to, um, uh, he made a deal with another friend, and whoever breaks their New Year's resolution first has to Venmo the other guy $100. Do that. If you need incentive on the line, find a friend or a roommate and say, hey, whoever quits on, you know, fasting every Monday first has to buy the other person a steak from Grill 23 or something. Put something fun on the line. Do whatever it takes. But regardless of your methods, understand The commitment is for something that is eternal and forever and awesome. Not something that is just, oh, well, I'll look better and be able to buy smaller clothes. Do it because your relationship with God and the fruit that will come out of that will be so much greater than even the work you put into it and what you thought would come out of this commitment. I'm so convinced that commitment to spiritual discipline really changes your life. It transforms it in so many ways. Do what you need to do to water the grass this year. The Apostle Paul was willing to give up so much and sacrifice so much and work and discipline his body so much. And because he understood what the prize was, it was difficult for him too. But what he wanted was to know God to be with God, feel close to God, and to love him. To know God, to be with God, and to love God through his actions. And so he committed. And so he did it for something that was eternal. And I hope and pray that all of us can see the knowledge of God, the closest to God, and love, the love of God to be that great of a treasure that we can commit to it in this year. Don't be discouraged by failure. And if you're part of the 92%, just Be like, okay, and just do it again. Because nothing's going to benefit us as spiritual disciplines in the ways that they draw us close to the knowledge of Christ Jesus in the fullness of joy of what it is in walking intimately with him. So that's my encouragement to all of us. Your soul is like a lawn. Grab that spiritual discipline hose and just douse it. And let's commit to that in this year. So let's pray together. Father, even though um, a year, I guess, I mean, it feels short sometimes, but it's a long amount of time. Um, life is a journey. And so before I, I, I continue to pray, I want to pause to pray that uh, you would rid us of any unneeded discouragement. 
Uh, I feel like we're really hard on ourselves for not following through or not being a good Christian, whatever that even means, and um, failing and having sin in our lives. Yeah, uh, we should keep ourselves accountable to a certain extent, but I want to pray against any undue discouragement especially if any undue and ungodly discouragement leads us to not realizing how much we are loved in Christ Jesus, even when we fail. So God, I want to pray that first, that as we approach our New Year's resolutions, as we approach 2016, as we approach maybe even application of this message of of committing to a spiritual discipline with, with, with attention, with fervency, with commitment, That even if we fail, we would not be discouraged, but we would accept your grace and just keep pressing on because of how much we know that you, Lord, in living for you and loving you and and communicating with you and whatever it is that leads us to you is so worth it. God, we can stand in line for hours for a stupid phone with a big smile on our faces and bringing lawn chairs and blankets and it's so worth it, but really those things are so dumb. Would you just change our perspective and our hearts that we would do whatever it takes to feel like you are right here with us because we're putting in the efforts to be there right with you. Help us to desire that so much. And when we don't desire you, O oh God, when we have no interest in you, would your grace be powerful and would your spirit's ministry be powerful in our lives to open up our eyes and uncover any blind spots that we would see how misled or misguided we are and and, and make us desire you more this year. Lord, I pray for this church and for everyone in this room and for, for all of us. Every year, we don't need to look back and think, we're oh, I'm a new person. I'm completely transformed. But will we at least look back in January 1st in 2017 and see how much effort, like an athlete, in training our bodies we put in to loving Jesus, and to loving our neighbors as ourselves. I pray that that would be the mark, that would be the success that we look for. Not whether we kept some resolution for 365 days, but that we put our hearts and our soul's effort into loving you more, into loving our neighbors. And God, in closing, I pray not for us, not for our resolutions, but I pray for your glory. That 2016 would be a year in which the glory of God would be magnified in this world. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about how sometimes this world seems so dark. When we think about 2015, we think of, you know, all the crisis um, and and havoc and and harm caused by natural disasters or or by ISIS or or plane crashes or, or disease. But this coming year, Lord, whether those things continue to exist or not, we pray that more and more tongues would come to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. More churches would be planted. More hungry mouths would be fed by the children of God. More people would be put into homes. More people would be baptized. More children would be led up in the Lord by their parents who are God-fearing. More marriages would be healed, repaired, or started because of how, and, and with humility because of the way that they love the Lord that leads them to love each other. Even that more prayers would be prayed and more pages of scripture would be turned because your church 
desires to be with you, and we see that you are the eternal treasure. Would this year be marked by that? And I pray that Cornerstone would be a piece of that puzzle of making that a reality in this world. So we thank you for all that you are to us. And we only want to pray that you would magnify yourself in our eyes so that we would long for you further and more. Help us in whatever ways to water the grass in our lawns, our souls. And we pray that you would be pleased and glorified and honored because of it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.